thank you for uh, choosing those songs, Aaron. I don't know how much you coordinated that with today, but Like a River Glorious was just thinking about how that relates to the message today and the fact that we can have peace like a river in Christ. There is stability in Christ. There is rest in Christ. There's hope in Christ. Let's begin today with a word of prayer. Lord, you know how much I need you, and you know how much we all need you. We don't even understand the depth of that. Help us today as we look at your word. Help me to preach truth. Help us to evaluate the words that we hear through the Bible. Lord, if what I am saying today is not coming from your word, don't let that stick. If what I'm saying today comes from your word, let it burrow down into our hearts. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for the truth that it gives to us. And we pray that you might help us now. In Christ's name, amen. C.H. Spurgeon recounts during one of his sermons one of his many episodes of depression, and in his sermon he said the following, I was lying upon my couch during this last week, and my spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Abraham Lincoln said this, I am now the most miserable man living. If what I feel were equally distributed to the whole human family, there would not be one cheerful face on earth. Whether I shall ever be better, I cannot tell. I awfully forebode I shall not. To remain as I am is impossible. I must die or be better, it appears to me. In the book Prozac Nation, the author writes this. Depression involves a complete absence, absence of effect, absence of feeling, absence of response, absence of interest. The pain you feel in the course of a major clinical depression is an attempt on nature's part to fill up the empty space. But for all intents and purposes, the deeply depressed are just the walking, walking dead. I read an article on WebMD that says this, to the lingering damage of COVID-19 infection, add this side effect. New research shows that more than half of those sickened by COVID-19 report depression. Among the more than 3,900 people who had COVID-19 surveyed between May 2020 and January 2021, 52% suffered symptoms of major depression, researchers found. People who have been ill with COVID-19 can experience depressive symptoms for many months after their initial illness, said lead researcher Roy uh, Perlis. He is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and associate chief of research in the Department of Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. 
On NPR's program, All Things Considered, they say this, nearly a quarter of people in the United States are experiencing symptoms of depression, according to a study published Wednesday. That's nearly three times the number before the COVID-19 pandemic began. And, and those with a lower income, smaller savings, and people severely affected by the pandemic, either through a job loss or by the death of a loved one, are more likely to be bearing the burden of these symptoms. When a population experiences something traumatic, such as a pandemic or natural disaster, researchers usually expect a rise in mental illness in the weeks and months following the event. Article from the Mayo Clinic says this, surveys show a major increase in the number of U.S. adults who report symptoms of stress, anxiety, and depression during the pandemic compared with surveys before the pandemic. Some people have increased their use of alcohol or drugs, thinking it can help them cope with their fears about the pandemic. NBC News released an article that says this, major depression is on the rise among Americans from all age groups, but is rising fastest among teens and young adults, new health insurance data says. Now, in case you have not guessed it yet, we're starting a new sermon series on the topic of depression. And I want to begin this verse, or this, this sermon series, rather, with a verse from 1 Thessalonians. I just want to remind us at the outset that we need to be cautious as we engage with other folks about this issue, and that is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers... Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. What's interesting about this verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14 is that it gives us a little bit of exhortation on how we are to approach people that are going through different seasons. There's not uh, a one-size-fits-all necessarily. If someone is uh, idle... If they're being lazy, that person needs admonishment. If the person is faint-hearted, that person needs encouragement. If the person is weak, that they need help. And everyone, no matter what the situation is, be patient with them. This is what 1 Thessalonians 5.14 reminds us. I will say that if we only understood... If we only could understand just a little bit how patient the Lord has been with us, we, we would learn a little bit of something about what it means to be patient with others. We all could point out people in our own lives that we say, I wish the change that needs to happen in their lives would happen faster. And quite honestly, we could all look at our own selves and say, I wish the change that needs to happen in here would happen faster. And the Lord's patience with us is a model for how we ought to be patient with others. This is certainly the disposition that we need to have as we minister to those struggling through this particular issue. I, I want to begin a sermon series on this topic, and, and I'm kind of envisioning uh, maybe about four total sermons, although uh, these things are subject to change uh, as, as we get into it. But uh, we obviously finished up Genesis. We did a short sermon series on persecution, and now starting a short sermon series on the topic of depression. And then, by God's grace, into the book of 1 Corinthians is uh, where we'll be uh, moving uh, on that. Uh, 
Um, but I do want to begin uh, this short sermon series with something that, that I hope, um, I really hope that you'll listen to um, clearly and, um, and, and, and giving the benefit of the doubt, all those kinds of things. And, and that is this. I think there may be some things as we talk about this that could be possibly offensive. And I want to say that my aim in ministry is not to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. I likewise do not avoid being offensive just so that everyone will like me and say nice things about me and send me nice little text messages about how nice I am. I am not unaware of the reality that when it comes to this topic of depression, opinions abound, and also emotions abound. Some of you could possibly be offended at some of the things that I will say. Some of you may possibly even be mad at me for some of the things that I will say. I, I, I don't want people to be mad at me, but it doesn't necessarily really bother me. There's only one thing that bothers me. There's, there's only one thing that I am afraid of today as I preach on this topic, and there's only one thing that I'm afraid of every time I get into the pulpit, and that is I am afraid of preaching something other than truth. My role and your role as a Christian is to be an ambassador. Whatever the king says is the message we deliver. And so the question is not really, do I like the message? Does, does, does it bode well with me? Uh, does, do, I, do I dislike John's haircut or whatever it might be, okay? The question is, is this the truth coming from our king? That's the question. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We ought to, as believers, more than anybody else in the world, love truth. We, we should be driven by truth. And as I prepare for a sermon series like this and try to anticipate perhaps maybe the ways in which I may be misunderstood, I kind of wondered if perhaps maybe one of the misperceptions may be that I might be perceived or accused of not having enough sympathy for those who are going through an issue like this. Now, one of the, the things as I kind of was meditating on this was I'm unable to address every situation because I'm addressing an entire congregation here. Some of you may, for example, be going through this right now. I don't know. I would say probably most of us would know somebody going through this. And so you may hear some of the things and, and you may say, I am not experiencing it or did not experience it or my friend has not experienced it in all the same ways that you have described. You might say something like this, well, he has no idea what I've been through. 
kind of a thing. Uh, the, the perception of that may be um, that I have not paused long enough to weep with those who weep. That's not my intent, okay? I can't give an example for every situation. There are hundreds, thousands of ways in which this is manifested in our lives, and so I can't possibly go through all those. I'm going to be hitting on the, 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 the kind of the mountain peaks, the, the big, tall things here, so to speak, and, and running through uh, on, on the big themes. My request is, and maybe I'm just misperceiving, I don't know, if you hear this and say, uh, I have erred in some way, as my request always is, is come and see me. I'll buy you coffee. Happy to talk through it. At the end of the day, though, I want to land on truth. That's where our goal is, is to land on truth. We love the truth. We believe that our answers are found in the truth. And the only thing that I will say very firmly that can give hope to the depressed is truth. That is the only thing that will give you hope. Not affirmation, but truth. That may be uncomfortable at times, at times, but I trust that by God's grace it will help us. I have put together an outline. And again, I will say that I... Um, I'm going to hold this loosely because as I study each week, sometimes things change. But I just want to give you the outline. We're only going to get through the first two of them today. But we're going to look at a brief word on psychology, biblical definition of depression, causes of depression, how to identify depression, the psychosomatic nature of depression, unbiblical responses to depression, how to counsel those who are depressed, and the cure to depression. So let's jump right in on this first one here. A brief word on psychology and psychiatry is the first one we're going to look at. In recent years, the nature of the conversation has shifted. And the only thing I want to make you aware of at this first part here is just make you aware that it has changed. The questions that we're asking today are different than questions we were asking 50 and 100 years ago. And it would seem to me that there is a progression in these questions so that our culture, and specifically our Christian culture, has shifted. And I want to give to you the three questions so that you understand where we're going with this. Uh, I'm not saying this is universal everywhere, but I'm saying in general, as I'm kind of taking the temperature of our culture, these are the things that I kind of see happening. Years ago, the question was this. Should we permit secular psychology to speak into counseling issues? And where the question used to be that Christians were asking. Then it would seem to me that the question shifted a little bit, and the question changed to this. How much secular psychology should we permit to speak into counseling issues? So that this was the conversation in churches. The question was not any longer, should we allow this or should we not? But the question was, well, of course we should. How much should we allow? And then it seems like today we're in a third question that has shifted a little bit here. And that question is this. Should we permit the Bible to speak into 
counseling issues. And I will say that in my own experience, even here in our own community, this third question in various forms comes up because as I talk to pastors, it would seem to me that a large number of pastors, even here in Wayne County, are really saying that we need to allow counseling issues to be given to the quote-unquote professionals, and we're not going to deal with any of those kinds of things. Now, whatever you think about these three questions, I at least want us to understand that I think this is the trend or the trajectory that we've gone on in our culture. This is the direction that our culture has gone. I want to help us to, to understand and recognize that we are fish swimming in water. Sometimes we don't know the water's there. And this is the oxygen that our culture breathes, so to speak. Sometimes we forget that we're in the water or that we're breathing this oxygen because it's so natural and so normal, and it's just like just everything about it is, is part, of, part and parcel of who we are. Sometimes we need to recognize, and we easily forget this, we need to recognize that things, the way they are now, have not always been the way that they are now, and things have changed. You are aware of the fact that C.S. Lewis criticized the youth of his day for their chronological snobbery. I've brought up that phrase a couple of times before. Uh, While everybody has a tendency to fall prey to the spirit of the age, it sometimes seems like the youth of our day are the ones especially prone to stumble here, and I know I'm a youth of our day, okay? I want to share a quote by John Piper, who uh, emphasized how C.S. Lewis's understanding of chronological snobbery has influenced him. And hopefully, if you don't know what this phrase means, this uh, Piper quote will help you to see that. John Piper writes this, Finally, he, that is Lewis, has made me aware of, or made me wary of chronological snobbery. That is, he has shown me that newness is no virtue and oldness is no fault. Truth and beauty and goodness are not determined by when they exist. Nothing is inferior for being old and nothing is valuable for being modern. This has freed me from the tyranny of novelty. And so, of course, chronological snobbery, as you can see, is this idea that it's only the new ideas that are the good ones. And all of the people of the previous generation, their ideas are old, they're outdated, they're just a bunch of fundies, and they just don't even know what's going on. Truth is not determined by when it exists. It is determined ultimately by God's word. Ideas cannot be evaluated on when they were popular. They must be evaluated based on individual merit. In his book entitled The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman writes the following. Whereas a society based on, say, Confucian ideals, age is to be respected because age brings with it wisdom, the Western world of today generally credits youth with wisdom and sees old age as corrupt, myopic, or behind the times. For example, we have seen in recent years been treated to children and teenagers lecturing the older generation on everything from health care to the environment. 
And what I would like to do is apply this logic to the topic at hand. While the previous generation is not inherently right because it's older, it does have the ability to critique us and say, I've been down that road before. I want to share some Bible verses to help us understand that we don't dismiss old people because they're old. Okay? Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Leviticus 19.32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. There's a little bit of weightiness to that, particularly with this last statement, you shall fear your God. There's a certain seriousness to this. Proverbs 20 and verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. There's a certain value that the Bible places on those who have experience That doesn't mean inherently that they're always right, but it does mean we ought to listen. Secular psychology, in its present form, is a modern invention, beginning with Freud, progressing towards other thinkers like John Watson, B.F. Skinner, Carl Rogers. And these ideas are new ideas. Now, again, they're not inherently wrong because they're new. They have to be evaluated next to what? Scripture. And so I want to demonstrate to you some of the key differences here. I'm not going to go through this whole chart. Um, I don't even know if you can read it or not. But I'm just going to give this to you, and I'm going to read a couple of them here, and I can send this to you later if you want. And my purpose in doing this is not to be overly academic, but simply just to acknowledge that different psychological viewpoints have competing values in certain biblical categories. So, so as an example, the Bible, where, whereas you see uh, under the problem area, you have the Bible identifying sin as the problem, but you have other views identifying the problem as subconscious conflict or faulty teaching or blocked goodness or unmet needs. Now, do you see, if this is all you know... Do you see how if you diagnose the problem in a different way, you're going to try to pursue a different solution? This is actually very key. Now, again, this does not mean that everything any uh, secular psychologist has said is wrong, but it does say that if they're operating from these basic assumptions, they're going to provide solutions and goals that are very different from the solutions and goals that the Bible gives to us. Each perspective, because of different uh, sources of problems, is going to identify different solutions. Those may include, and, and are included on this list here, psychoanalysis, behavior modification, or client-centered therapy. And I will say, and I'll just add this one point here, there is no universally agreed-upon consensus in the secular community. Now, you have uh, three main views here next to the Bible. Uh, There's a lot of um, 
kind of borrowing from one view to the next, and there's nothing in these views that is universally, this is the answer. You go to different psychologists or psychiatrists, and you're going to get different answers based on what their core assumptions are. And I will say this again, just so I'm not misunderstood here. I am not saying that everything that a psychologist says is wrong. One of the errors that we can fall into is a logical fallacy called the genetic fallacy. Okay, You know what the genetic fallacy is? The genetic fallacy is a logical fallacy that you say, because of the source, this is automatically wrong. Something is not always wrong just because it came from a certain person. Okay, None of us would probably want to quote Hitler, but he probably said some things that were right, okay? <laughs> now, I don't advise you to go and quote Hitler, okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm saying, okay? I'm just saying you cannot say, if Hitler said the sky is blue, we wouldn't disagree with that because it came from him, okay? You understand what we're saying here? That's the genetic fallacy, okay? We're not saying that just because a secular psychologist says something, it's automatically wrong. God does allow unbelievers in his common grace to find truth. This is a function of God's common grace. So that people who don't believe in Christ and are not operating off of biblical assumptions will land on things that are very true. We sometimes find truth in very unlikely places. But it should give us a moment's pause to wonder, why is there this shift taking place? Why is it that the question has gone from, should we allow the secular psychologist to speak into counseling issues, to Christians actually saying, should we allow the Bible to speak into counseling issues? What is it that has caused that kind of a shift? How is it that we have shifted so that when someone comes to a pastor and says, I'm struggling with anxiety or depression or despair or hopelessness, that they say, that's not part of my job description. I'm going to send you to the professionals. Why is it that we are there today? Some people would tell us as Christians, when it comes to the area of counseling, that we are to stay in our lane. But we would have to respond to that criticism by saying this. The Bible was here first. You stay in your lane. When the secular psychologist steps upon things that the Bible addresses, it has to be evaluated from the Bible. It is not the Christian that has infringed. It is the secular psychologist who has infringed on the expertise of the Bible every time they contradict Scripture. And what we will attempt to do in this short sermon series is to look at the biblical data on the topic of depression. And basically, here's what we want to do. We want to formulate a Christian theology of depression. We will not look to modern psychology for answers. However, we will look to the Bible for answers. And so let us go to our second point, which is this, a biblical definition of depression. We'll get to this today. This will be, we'll conclude with this and a little bit of hope uh, so that I'm not leaving you hanging. Uh, But let's kind of get our bearings 
According to Scripture, where are we? How are we defining our terms? This is a little bit of a challenge to us in order to define the word uh, depression because what we need to do first is we need to first translate 21st century terminology into biblical terminology. The word depression was not a word used when the Bible was written. And so just as an example of this, the early church fathers referred to depression with the word sloth. Okay, so whenever you see the early church fathers use the word sloth, many times they're talking about what we would call depression. The Puritans used a different word. Does anybody know the word that Puritans used to describe depression? Someone? What? Melancholy. That's it. The Puritans called depression melancholy. Uh, you may recall from my podcast series that I did on OCD that uh, that was not always the term used, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. It used to be called having the scruples, okay? And so you have these ways in which terminology has shifted. And so when we say, Let me, what is depression defined? It's not like you could just open up your Bible and find every instance of the word depression to say, that's what depression is. So there's a little bit of, a, a, uh, a little bit of homework that has to be done. The word depression never occurs in the ESV, which is what I typically preach on. Um, but it does occur in other translations. Okay, I'm going to give to you two instances of the word depression in other translations. In the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the word depression shows up in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 2. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression, is the way the HCSB translates this. Uh, the ESV, for reference, translates this as sadness of heart. So the ESV says sadness of heart. The Holman Christian Standard says depression. The New King James Version translates uh, a word as depression in Proverbs 12, in verse 25. The New King James says this, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. The ESV instead translates it as anxiety weighs him down, okay? So right off the bat, as we're trying to explore this topic, we have the idea of sadness or sorrow. We, we understand that. But depression, as we understand it today, is more than just sorrow. Somebody says, I'm depressed. They're probably not saying, I'm just sad today. We understand that there's something a little bit more to it than that. The DSM-5, which is the secular go-to source for all things psychological, gives a list of diagnostic criteria for depression, and this is what they say. Five or more of the following symptoms have been present during the same two-week period and represent a change from previous functioning. 
at least one of the symptoms is either a depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. There's a list of nine items that they give in the DSM-5, and the, they say that at least one of those five, one of the five, so you have to have five of these, and one of the five has to be either number one or number two. So number one is this, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Number two, diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every, every day. So you have to have one of those according to the DSM-5. And then um, any of these other ones. Again, at least five total. Number three is significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. Number four is insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. Five, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. Six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Number nine, recurrent thoughts of death or suicide. Now, you notice a theme in some of these things? Nearly every day, it's a constant thing. So I want to give to you some Bible passages that sound like this deeper form of sadness that the world is trying to point their finger at. Psalm 6 and verse 6. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. See, the theme we're going to explore here is the nearly everyday theme. Okay. Psalm 42 and verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. It's a continual thing. Psalm 102 and verse 4. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. It sounds pretty depressed. Romans 9 and verse 2. Paul says about his lost fellow Israelites, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Unceasing anguish. Job 3.24, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. That sounds like he's pretty low. Again, several of these verses emphasize the unceasing nature of this. Every night, day and night, unceasing anguish. This is more than the occasional sorrow of the heart. This is a relentless pounding again and again and again. This is not my, my uh, sports team lost. This is a continual, continual thing. Now, this is where it gets a little bit hard as we kind of try to find what our definition is. It, it becomes hard to pinpoint because we have to acknowledge that there is a great bit of subjectivity in this. What does nearly every day mean? I mean, how many days in the week? Can you, is it three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, six days a week? Where, where's the cutoff? How can I put my finger on you're depressed, but you're just a little over the line and you're not depressed? becomes a little bit hard to identify. And so because of this, many definitions are going to vary slightly, and it may be a little bit elusive, and uh, if you don't totally agree with the definition I'm going to give, then that's fine. We can talk about it afterwards. So I'm going to keep it short and simple. I'm actually going to borrow a definition from somebody else. This is actually Jim Berg's definition, 
And as I was doing reading and studying, I thought this really kind of summed it up well. And Jim Berg's definition of depression is simply this, sorrow without hope. It's fairly straightforward. It's not very complicated. And it's your having sorrow, but there's a corresponding lack of hope that goes with that. By embracing this definition, we understand that you can have sorrow, but not necessarily be depressed, whatever that is. (laughs) Depression is distinguished from regular sorrow because depression not only is sorrowful, but it sees the situation as hopeless. There's no way out of this. I'm never going to escape out of this situation. Psalm 42 and verse 5. In fact, this is going to be a verse that we're going to come to again and again during this study. Uh, Psalm 42, 5 and actually verse 11 as well says the same thing. Um, So you may want to uh, write this down or highlight this verse because we're going to come to this again and again and again. Psalm 42 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Now, this verse is going to come in from a number of angles. One of the angles that we're going to see a little bit later is instead of listening to his own emotions, the psalmist is preaching to himself. He's not listening to himself, he's preaching to himself. And this is going to be part of the cure that we're going to look at later on, is you need to not listen to those emotions, you need to preach truth to yourself. Now, specifically for our purposes today... What is the content of the truth that he's preaching to himself? Hope, right? So as the psalmist was evaluating what was going on in his own heart, and as he was seeing the sorrow there, he was saying, he was, he was, he was doing uh, some diagnostics, and when he did the diagnostics, he realized, I don't have hope. So this verse is what we're going to use to support our definition that depression is sorrow without hope. He identified his sorrow, and he also realized that the cure was hope, and that's why he prescribed it to himself, which meant that he was sorrowing without hope. Hence our definition. Now, there's something about this definition that is very good, because the way that we've defined depression, means that in the definition itself, there already is a seed of a solution given to us, right? The the seed of the answer is in the definition of depression itself. Where's the seed? It's the word hope, right? If, If depression is sorrow without hope, then I need to fix that without hope problem. This also means, as a side note, that it's not inherently wrong to be sorrowful. In fact, there are some situations that you would go through, and if you weren't sorrowful, I would question what's wrong with you. 
Sorrow is not a wrong emotion. So, so let's, let's identify clearly at the outset what the enemy is here. The enemy, when we're talking about depression, is not the sorrow. You can have sorrow and be okay. The enemy is the without hope. The enemy is what we might call despair, if we wanted to use that word. So what we're going to do today here, as we wrap up, is, as is usually my pattern when I go through a series like this, is I don't want to wait until we get all the way to the the cure to depression to give you something today, okay? Because I don't want you to walk away from here depressed because you don't have the answer, okay? I, I want you to have some form of hope. I want there to be something here that you can cling or grab onto. And the answer is, in our definition and in Psalm 42 and verse 5, the answer is that we need something called hope, specifically theological hope. And it is on this note that we intend to end today. In December 2020, there was a Gallup poll that some of you may have seen. And the Gallup poll was reporting on the mental health of Americans, okay? And they were reporting based on uh, 2019 versus 2020, okay? So you had pre-COVID, and then you had post-COVID. And uh, the poll was uh, titled... Americans' mental health ratings sink to new low. In the poll, if you saw it, it had uh, Americans separated by various categories. So they had gender, male versus female. What was their mental health like? And it had Republican versus Democrat versus Independent. What does their mental health look like? Married versus non-married. And there was a total of 19 categories on this Gallup poll. And they were rated by percentage. So how many, uh, what percentage was it in 2019? And what percentage was it in 2020? And out of those 19 categories, 18 of those categories showed a decrease in mental health. 18 out of 19 categories said that these people in these groups rated their mental health as worse in 2020 than in 2019. There was one category in the Gallup poll that showed an increase. So what category of people was it that according to this Gallup poll, showed an increase. Was it the men? Was it the women? Was it the Republicans, the Democrats, the independents? What was it? The increase was those who attend religious services every single week. Here's the Gallup poll. 
Now, I don't know what they understood religious services to be, okay? Even, and you even have a breakdown here of, so you have religious service attendance, and then you have nearly weekly and monthly, and you have seldom and never. So the seldom never showed a decrease, and the nearly weekly slash monthly category showed a decrease, and it was only the weekly one that showed an increase. Now, here's what I want to observe and take away as we look at this topic of depression over the next few weeks. And that is this. The Bible has the answers. God's word has the answers. You and I have access to a source of hope that the world does not have. If you are someone here today that's in the trenches, I don't know where all of you are, but if you are someone here today that is in the trenches... Here's what I want to give to you. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Are you struggling through this issue? Are you struggling through the issue of depression? a.k.a. sorrow without hope. Cast your burden on the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. Here's another one. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You, You see that first part? You're not alone in the struggle, first of all. No one can say nobody has ever struggled like I'm struggling right now. You, you can't say that. Do, do, do you see 1 Corinthians 10, 13? Notice how, how theologically centered it is. Notice how God-centered it is. Because what is the next thing he says after no temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man? Three words. What are they? God is faithful. You know what the depressed person needs to know? They need to know their theology. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be be able to endure it. You know what we're doing here? We're eliminating that without hope part of of the depression. There is hope. Psalm 34 and verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. (laughs) When you become depressed or when you enter into this sorrow without hope, here's one of the symptoms. You're in a fog. 
And I know that I've used this illustration before, but I have to use it again. And that is when you're in an airplane, you have to trust your instrument panel, right? Right. Um, if you fly into stormy weather and you are not rated to fly with instruments, you don't have a very long life expectancy. You go into a cloud and you're probably dead because everything, am I going up, am I going down? I, I can't tell where I am. And this is what happens in the depressed person. I, I don't, is the Bible real? Is it not? Is this real? Is that real? Is this truth? Is that truth? Look at your instrument panel. God is faithful. He's near to the brokenhearted. You see these theological truths that we're anchoring ourselves to that help us to get out of this. Find rest in your God. He's enough. I have three points of application for us today, and that is this. When you're helping someone else through depression, be patient because the Lord has been infinitely patient with you. Okay? Be patient. Number two, when you're struggling through depression, look to the wisdom of the Bible instead of the wisdom of the world. The Bible has answers. And number three, in your sorrow, hope in God. And I will say that um, I, I understand the nature of this particular issue is such that it is sometimes, for some people, a very long road. And if this is something that you find yourself in, I, I would be more than happy to minister to you however I can. Uh, and I think I can speak for many others in the church here uh, that would be willing to uh, work through these kinds of things. There is hope, and it's in Christ. He's enough. Thank you, God, for today. Help us to run to Christ, knowing that you're enough and that you've provided sufficient hope for us as we struggle through the issues of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.